Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Good to be with you this morning. We are in the Advent season, and we've been looking at this metaphor that we see in these stories that lead up in the Gospels to Jesus' birth and then just after his birth. And one of the themes that you'll see in this time is the theme of pregnancy. Mary, we looked at this last week, this conceived a child in her, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this metaphor of carrying the next thing that God wants to do, carrying the hope that God has in you is one of the big themes of this season. And what I want to do is I want to read on uh, and we're going to read a story. And often this story is only half read. So this is a Christmas story. You are probably going to be pretty familiar with the first part, but then you may not hear the second part at Christmas time. And we'll get into more why that is. But let's begin with Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. Story of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star rose and we have come to worship him. What you see here is this setting out of the stalls early on. First of all, we have the acknowledgement that this is in the time of King Herod. Who is King Herod? Herod is a king that has been placed over the Jews. However, he's not really the power because the Romans are in control. And he's a bit of an intermediary trying to push his own agenda. He's like a corrupt official that the Romans have put in charge over the people of God in Judea. And then this next piece of information that coming from the east A Magi. Who are Magi? Magi are these wise men that probably caught almost like prophets from this pagan milieu that offer wisdom. They advise kings, but they're coming from the east, from Babylon, and they're coming to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews. Now, if you heard this at this time, you would have understood straight away that what this was was a hint that one of the great promises of God, this hope that one day kings would come from far, important people would come from afar and come and worship the king of Israel, that this hope was being answered in your time. Now to add another layer to this, the defining memory for many people in Judea and Israel at this time was that they had lived in the past through an exile, where they had not followed God, they had not been holy, they had not been righteous, they had not practiced justice, and therefore the people went into exile and the best and the brightest were taken away to Babylon. And so this is a great reversal. Now people are coming from the east from Babylon and coming to Judea and they're going to worship the king of the Jews. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this sounds like good news, and it is good news to the people. It's good news to anyone whose heart was after God. But who it was not good news to was King Herod. If your king and you're told that another king has been born, that is a threat to your position. And particularly Herod knew that he was not a popular king. Herod did lots of big building projects. He killed even members of his own family who were possible rivals to him. And this is bad news if you are Herod. So Herod begins to do something and we can see the outline of this start to emerge in verse seven. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared. Notice the word secretly. He hears these Magi coming, he gets an audience with them, and he secretly starts to concoct a plan. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. Again, that word carefully is really interesting, seemingly concerned for the child's well-being. But actually something else is happening. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now again, this is another hint of a prophetic promise coming true. One of the great prophetic promises was that the nations would come and bring their treasures, bring their best to Jerusalem to offer to God. And this is what's happening here. Now, Herod's outline of a plan we can see but then what we see is it's intercepted with God's plan here in verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. God's using dreams. God's speaking. God is undoing this campaign of secrecy that is being engaged by King Herod. Another dream we encounter in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, this is the father of Jesus, in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. We see the full outline here of Herod's plan. It's revealed. Herod's plan was for the Magi to go give him the location of Jesus and then Herod would come and kill him, like he killed members of his own family. Herod was, had no qualms about killing to keep himself in the job. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. His plan had not come to fruition. 
And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So his original plan to simply just target Jesus comes undone and he does something truly, truly terrible. Not knowing which child is the Messiah, he then actually has all of the children in that age bracket of what Jesus would have been born, all the boys killed in Bethlehem. What was going to be a hit becomes a massacre. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel being here, biblical language for the people of Judah, crying. Now, as you can see, the first part of the story is very Christmassy. We love the nativity scenes of the Magi coming from the east. Often you'll see them in camels and they come in all their finery and they present these gifts at the foot of baby Jesus. But you can also see why often we don't read on. In the time of Christmas, where we remember it every year. There's a story as we encounter it in the Gospels, but then also there's this sort of chintzy, sentimental, nostalgic, sort of dripping with honey version of, of Christmas where we can sometimes miss the guts of the story. And we see here in the second part a wider revelation of what's actually happening at Christmas. So there's a couple of things I just want to outline about where we're going to go. The first one is this. You have to steward and take care when God has started something new, when God has implanted something, when God has conceived something, when the Holy Spirit has started something new, you have to carry that with care. Joseph and Mary moved to Egypt because they're willing to do anything to protect their child. And for us, as we begin to think about what are the things that God has for us, we need to take the kind of care where we would do anything with zeal to protect the thing that God is doing amongst us. But the second thing is that often when there is a move of God, there is a counter move of the enemy. That when God initiates new things, this does not just remain in a neutral space, that actually there are the powers and principalities and the enemy which comes against. Herod here is a corrupt king. Herod is a murderous thug on the throne. But also behind Herod, we must understand that there are spiritual dynamics which represent the powers which oppose God. And so this plot, this conspiracy that Herod engages in then becomes an assignment which doesn't just take out Jesus. It actually, it takes out this whole generation of children in Bethlehem. Now, one of the themes that we've been looking at, and we looked at this last week, is that the thing we remember at Advent is that God wants to conceive something new in us. The Holy Spirit wants to plant something new, a story of renewal for our time as well. We remember backwards to also see what God's going to do forwards. And where the church finds itself in the world after this period of disruption is God is seeding his dream in the world. He's seeding it in people. I was on a call this week, I did a, a video interview with Finland, people in Finland. I didn't know heaps about the church in Finland. 
And they talked to me about the disruption after disruption of the last couple of years. What's actually happening is, what they're discovering is that there's a group of particularly young adults who God is giving a hunger for prayer, rhythms, and the presence of God. And they're hoping that in that group of young adults in Finland, that actually God's going to birth something in a super, super secular country. And this story everywhere, all over the world, similar things that people are saying across language barriers and all of this, that God wants to do something in the next generation, that God wants to bring a renewal to the church. That's the dream that is being conceived at this moment. But what this story tells us is two things. We have to carry what has been conceived with care. Secondly, that there is an assignment that is going to come against the next thing that God wants to do. That is not all just lovely nativity scenes and shepherds and magi bringing gifts. They're parts of it. But what we see here is that there is a plot, an assignment that Herod had that was aimed at Jesus, but aimed also then to take out a whole generation. And I want to argue today in a very non-sentimental Christmas-like sermon that actually the powers and principalities of the day to come against the next thing that God is seeding in people and in the church at this moment has an assignment against the next generation. And this plot, which often has just been plucking people off over the decades and the secular, post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, West that we live in, I want to argue that just as Herod's plot went from a hit to a massacre, that this plot is also going from a singular hit to a massacre to take out a generation spiritually. Now, if you look at history, most cultures have elements where if you follow the sort of script of the culture, it's fairly neutral. There are elements in every culture which may align with good things of God. Say, in a culture of looking after your elders, that's something which aligns with Proverbs, of respecting the old. And cultures which do that, they may not be doing that because it's coming out of the biblical revelation, but there's going to be elements in a culture which is aligned with God, neutral, and against God. That's right, most history. Now, lots of the life scripts of many cultures are often in the neutral space. There's even cultures which have stuff which they instruct their young, which is to, how to live in reality, how to live with wisdom, how to respect your elders, that in a sense are either neutral or slightly positive, and people have got to sort of then discover what's, a, what's not of God, what's of God. But we are living in a moment where that neutral space is disappearing. That if you look now, and I'm not going to, this sermon, I'm not going to spend going through all the data, but I want to argue that there is an assignment against the next generation which contains the following elements. Firstly, the overarching communication of a false life script and a faulty map to living based on radical individualism, based on selfishness, where the point of life is just amassing a collection of experiences that will be washed away like tears in the rain and which builds very little. And this life script is unlike almost any other culture we've seen throughout history. Live for yourself. You're the center of the universe, is this life script. Now, this has been going for some time, 
but this is becoming more and more acute. Now, alongside of this, this is not just communicated in school. This is communicated through this means of communication where this is all-powerful. This comes through media. This comes through school. This comes through government. This comes through social media. This comes through advertising. This comes through consuming. It is literally everywhere that you are to pretty much live for yourself. This is the bedrock in many ways of the Western world. And this is done in a particular way where it is forming you through technology at every moment. And what this does then is part of the plot of the enemy is to actually spiritually entrap you and compromise you with things of the world which undermines holiness. To continually addict and overstimulate you 24-7 so you barely have space to even listen to the voice of God. And this comes in a totally radical form that you could argue is almost akin to brainwashing. I once had someone come up to me after church and they, they asked a, a question. And I've had this question a couple times. And the person came up and said, listen, is church this thing where you give talks and you listen to music and in some sense this is like sort of influencing people and shaping their thinking? It's an interesting argument. And I wonder what I thought about this. And I thought, hang on. What? Like the rest of the world? Like everything? Like you were being marketed to, sold to. You get, in a, you get in a lift and there's music to calm you into a particular state. You get on a plane to Devonport and Jetstar is playing certain music with certain ads to influence you. You go to a shopping mall. The way that you walk is shaped. You sit in a car. That car is designed by some of the smartest people to get you into a particular mode. Everything is influencing you all the time. And in our culture, we are seeing levels of that unseen before. And where that is leading to, when you look at the hard data of the next generation, we see a next generation emerging who are losing hope. We're about to enter into one of the biggest demographic drops seen in human history because people are giving up hope of even having children. We are seeing a culture growing up where overwhelmingly emerging generations are struggling with mental illness, depression, anxiety. We are seeing a reality where an emerging generation is entrapped in financial debt unseen, like except in those periods when civilizations collapse. We are seeing emerging generations addicted to all kinds of things. We're seeing physical, mental, emotional, relational poverty is what marking the next generation. If this is not an assignment, I don't know what is. And I feel there's this point where we're looking at this and people are starting to see this. Who does this affect? Well, number one, it primarily affects the young. It affects people from when they're born all the way into the early 20s when they're young. This assignment is continually coming against them and undermining their potential for life and subverting their potential for flourishing. It's not just for the Christians, it's coming against everyone. The second group this is affecting is parents. Parents trying to parent in the midst of this is increasingly becoming a battle. 
You speak to parents now, we feel it as parents, like there is this sense where you are battling against things, technology, culture, everything, which seems to be undermining your kid's health 24-7, and it just gets absolutely exhausting. People don't know how to parent in this time because of all these unseen challenges coming against. The third group, and what may be indicative is, if when I said young, and you thought I meant you, and you're over 21, this is indicative. That this overarching assignment means that Western culture sees itself as a youth culture. That people struggle to mature, and we get stuck in some kind of adolescence well into our 20s, into our 30s, into our 40s, 50s, and even beyond. Now, this is an assignment that is coming against and has to be named clearly as what it is. And I think more people are beginning to see it and they're seeing this element about mental health and we're seeing this element about addiction or we're seeing this element about a lack of hopelessness or dropping birth rates or, you know, read an article about in South Korea how they're building restaurants for just people to eat by themselves because they have no friends. You see all these bits of it, but no one sees the overarching big story behind it all. So that is the assignment that is coming against. Now, what does this come against? Well, God's plan for renewing the earth and humanity is centered around the transmission of a living faith. And we see this living faith is primarily in the biblical story communicated down through the generations. In Deuteronomy, as Moses is speaking to the generation who are going to head into the promised land, he says this, this is the generation who have seen God move, go ahead of them in the wilderness in a pillar of fire. These are people who have seen the presence of God in incredible, tangible ways, who have seen miracles. And Moses says to them this, be careful, watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. The mode of operation that God uses is to teach a living faith and pass it down the generations. And so we see that people who are young, I mentioned this, I think, last week, the Barnett Research Group demographic studies say that the primary place that people give their lives to Jesus for the first time, that they wholeheartedly give their life to Jesus, is in that sort of 15 to 21 age group. Normally sort of 17, 18, 16, 17, 18 is when people give over to God the whole of their lives. Is it then surprising that that open door, the enemy is trying to shut and destroy with an assignment? And so the enemy's key assignment is to break the transmission of faith down the generations because the enemy knows that the next generations are pregnant with spiritual possibility, and so the enemy is going to throw all his resources at the point that is of the most danger to him. So how do we approach this biblically? Well, let's go back to Matthew's gospel. Let's go down to verse 16. And let's read, because there's a clue in here. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. 
Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah, underline that, was fulfilled. A voice, now this is Jeremiah. So Matthew is here quoting Jeremiah from the book of Jeremiah. Verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel or Judah, the people of God, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Why does he use this quote here? Why does Matthew use this quote from Jeremiah? Well, to understand this, we have to understand what's happening in the time of Jeremiah. I talked at the beginning of this that the symbolism of the Magi coming and worshipping at the feet of Jesus was that previously the people of God, an entire generation, the fruit of Israel, were taken to Babylon. And that was an intent to just wipe out the future of Israel, to steal the best and the brightest and take them to captivity and exile. That was the enemy's assignment. And so Matthew is referring to that point. Ramah was the town just a little bit north of Jerusalem where the Babylonians did like a staging post. They got all this generation, got them into groups and then sent them in these caravans off to Babylon. This is why the mothers are crying. This is why Rachel Symbolizing the mothers of Judah is crying because they're seeing an entire generation removed and captured and most likely heading into compromise in Babylon. Jeremiah saw the best of his generation carted away into exile in a foreign land. This was devastating. This was like hope had ended. But God had called Jeremiah to be a prophet. And what prophets do is often in times of happiness and comfort, they have a message of difficulty. But often in a time of difficulty, they have a message of hope. And the series that we're in, we're calling A Thrill of Hope. And prophets speak about hope, not in a schmaltzy, advertising, hallmark card way of just throw around hope like it's nothing. Now, this is hope that has to be held on to. The term is thrill of hope. This is hope that is thrilling because it grabs you and does something to you. And so Jeremiah, as a prophet, does something at this time. They've lost the next generation, but he does something. And he does what's called, you could call it a living parable or a prophetic action. That's when prophets will sometimes say something, but other times they'll do something to symbolize a bigger spiritual truth. Now, wandering during this time when the Babylonians were attacking Israel and Judah, the streets of Jerusalem saw a strange kind of group rock up that people hadn't really seen before. There was a group, a sub-tribe of a bigger tribe. There was a bigger tribe called the Kenites, and there's a subgroup called the Rechabites. And these people have been wandering around the streets. People really know them. They lived out in the whoop-whoop, and they're rocking around the streets. They were a bit different. There was something about them. And so as a prophetic action, what Jeremiah does is he brings them into this room and he puts before them bowls of wine. Now, that's a normal thing you would do in the Middle East, super hospitable. Laws of hospitality are really, really important. But this has particular kind of meaning. Now, what he says to them is, here's the wine, and they don't drink. They said, no, we're not going to drink that. Because we've committed to this particular code, 
and we don't do a whole bunch of things. Like we don't build houses, we don't plant seeds. We do things very differently because our ancestor commanded us to live in this very different way. And so the Rechabites were in the people of God who were called, but they had an extra calling upon them. And what Jeremiah is doing here, he is saying, here's this group of people, you've lost hope, you think a generation's gone, I want to show you that rocking around on your literal streets are another group of people and they've got a counter message to what you're feeling, this sense of hopelessness and the next generation is gone and captured and that God's hope is over. What can we learn from the Rechabites? I think this is super crucial. If there's an assignment against the emerging generation, what can we learn from the Rechabites? First of all, the Rechabites were set apart. Holiness in the Hebrew means set apartness. They understood that they were not part of the broader culture. They understood that they were not called to just simply assimilate and live like everyone else. There was a call on their life. And what Jeremiah is doing is the reason that Israel had gone into exile in Babylon was because they had assimilated with the pagan cultures around them. And instead of worshipping the one true God, they worshipped idols and assimilated with the broader culture. And their call to be a people set apart and holy in the promised land was blunted and undermined. And then their best and brightest, who could have brought a renewal, was sent off to Babylon where they're going to be even more crushed. But the Rechabites are a counter-message saying it's possible to be faithful. It's possible not to assimilate. It's possible to receive something from your forefathers and pass it on and live in a way that's set apart. And the Rechabites speak to us at this moment. In a time where seemingly the forming elements of culture are more powerful than ever before, it is still possible to be holy and set apart particularly if you're young. Now, you can be set apart because you're just a bit of an eccentric. You can be set apart because you're a loner. You can be set apart because you're just a bit weird. But the second thing that the Rechabites show us is that they had spiritual integrity. It's not enough to be set apart. You must have spiritual integrity to go along with the set-apartness. In Jeremiah 32, verse 39 God says of the people in a promise of hope, I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me and all will go well with them and for their children after them. If you want things to be that transmission, if you want a generation not to be taken out, if you want to live differently, it's not enough just to be have set apartness. You need spiritual integrity. And the definition of spiritual integrity in this verse is a unification of heart an action. Many of us desire to be set apart. Many of us desire to live differently than we do. Many of us have great intentions, but often they're undermined by our actions. But what God is saying here is there is a thrill of hope in the promise that he will give us, he will give those who ask, a singleness of heart and action. This submission to this environment where you're growing with God. That singleness of heart and action rarely, if ever, happens in a moment. How that is forged is in a life where you push forward with God, growing with Him, submitting your life to Him, dying to the flesh, 
walking in his footsteps. And what this does, the second part of this verse illustrates this. Thirdly, we have been told that your whole point of your life is it's all about you. Just accrue experiences, live your best life. You only live once, have a constant fear of missing out. But instead, what the Rechabites teach us is your life is not about you. You actually are a link in a chain of living faith. There are reasons that some of you are here. It's because people prayed for you several generations ago. Grandmothers, uncles, aunties, some old lady sitting at the back of church who maybe you never even knew who she was, but she was praying for the young people. Maybe you weren't even in church. Maybe someone was praying for your area. Maybe there was promises over you. You live a link in a chain, and we're not just called to be thankful for what's gone before. We're also going to be pushing for thankfulness forward and invest in the generations to come. We are called to be part of the chain of living faith. That's why renewal should always be spoken about because what renewal is, is keeping it going forward into the next generations. It's not just about us having a wonderful spiritual time now. It's that happening, but also it going forward. People don't like that. Today, people don't like that. We don't like to see ourselves... Because to do that, you're going to have to give some stuff up. I realized being a parent, I had to give a lot of stuff up. I remember a moment, key moment, our daughter Grace is here, which is a baby, not the best sleeper. You're a fantastic sleeper now. Um, I remember this moment. There was almost like this young mentality still in me. And we just couldn't get Grace to sleep. We used to take her to Chadston Shopping Centre because at like 9 o'clock at night, we just couldn't get down. So we just didn't want to walk around the streets in the dark. So we just would walk up and down Chadston. It's like a Friday night. We used to be doing stuff on a Friday night. We'd walk up and down Chadston. Finally, she's asleep. Put her in the car. And we had this CD. And the CD was, I'm, I'm really ashamed to talk about this. The CD was classical music to make babies sleep. <laughs> and I remember somewhere between Chadston and my house, driving, and I'm like, it's Friday night. I've just walked for like 17 kilometres, it feels like, in Chadston Shopping Centre. I've got friends who are doing other stuff. There's all this stuff happening in the world. And I'm sitting in a car listening to, I don't know, Mozart. Okay, I'm not young anymore. (laughs) I have to die to something to grow up. Now, I think there's something really key also in the, in, in the Rechabites. I, we've gone on a journey. We started with Matthew. We then went into the, the quote about Jeremiah and unlocked something there. But I just want to take you one level deeper because it's worth it into the biblical hyperlinks. When you follow the cross-references, you get to amazing places. So I'm just going to read you the passage from when Jeremiah offers this wine to the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35 verse 6. But they replied, we do not drink wine because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also must you never must build houses, sow seeds or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. So they replied, that's them quoting, we have obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. 
Neither we nor our wives nor sons or daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses or lived or had vineyards, fields or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jehanabab commanded us. Now, you get stuck here going, oh, shouldn't I drink? Whatever. That's not the point. What I got interested in is, who on earth is this Jehanadab? I'm going to look him up. And it took me to a time in Israel which, again, was really dark. In the book of Kings, you have this series of really bad kings. And you have a generation of prophets who are coming up in the land, people like Elijah, And it is just full-scale, total war between the prophets and the prophets of Baal, the prophets of God, the one true God, and Baal. This is emblematically in an incredible scene where Elijah goes up against these prophets of Baal in this complete spiritual power battle. Fire. It's all happening. Incredible moment. Straight after that, Elijah is running for his life. He's just won the ultimate spiritual showdown against the prophets of Baal. Yet in the next scene, this guy is running for his life. He just like called down fire from heaven. But the next scene, he's running for his life because he's in deep, deep fear of whom? A queen called Jezebel, who's married to a king called Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel are just absolutely terrible. They've completely compromised with the surrounding cultures. They're killing the prophets. This is full-blown Herod strategy to wipe out a generation. The prophets are either hiding out or killed. And Elijah's just in the middle of nowhere under a tree, fearing for his life. God moves. There's a whole story. We could go into there, still small voice, all of that. But God eventually undoes the unjust kingship and queenship of Ahab and Jezebel, and he undoes it by raising this new king. God gets to the point where he cannot tolerate Ahab as king anymore, and he commands Elijah to anoint a new king, and this new king is called Jehu. And what happens is Jehu, as soon as he's anointed, he is single-mindedly set on undoing this assignment that is coming against the next thing that God wants to do, that is coming against the prophets, that's coming against the hope of renewal. And it is it's like the Terminator. Like as soon as he gets anointed and he literally gets in his chariot and he's just herring across the land and heading to Ahab and to Jezebel. Now what's really interesting is this is where we encounter Jehonadab. Again, a generation's about to be taken out. Again, there is something coming against the next thing of God. Again, we have God doing something. 2 Kings 10, 15. After he, Jehu, had left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. This is when we first encounter Jehonadab. Jehonadab, what's he doing? Jehonadab, in a time when everyone's afraid, in a time when we find out later there's literally like prophets hiding out in a cave, when literally heaps of the generation has been killed, what's Jehonadab doing? He's somehow heard about Jehu. He's heard that he's not going to be part of just sitting in fear. He's actually going to get on the side of what God's doing next. He's got really good intent in his heart. 
Jehonadab obviously has a good heart because he does not like what's happening in the land, but this is where it gets good. So that's what he's doing. He's rocking along the road looking for Jehu. Now, Jehu before this sees different people. He's like, are you with me? And they're like, no. Nah. He's like, there's no in-between. There's no black and white. Uh, sorry, there's no gray with, with Jehonadab. It's just like, are you with me or not? We're either against this assignment or you're with it. Jehu greets him and said, are you in accord with me as I am with you? This is like, what side are you on? Are you going to hide in fear? Are you on the side of Ahab and Jezebel? Or are you going to join God's pushback against this assignment against the next generation? I am, Jehonabad answered. Right, cool. He's got a good heart. He's saying it. But this is where heart and action get molded. I mean, this is a movie scene. If so, then, Jehu says, all right, you've got the heart. You've got the heart. But if so, give me your hand. So the scene here is Jehonadad's walking along the side of the road. Jehu is just like, in, he's just like single-minded. He's in the, in the chariot going this way. Jehonadad's down there. And Jehu's right, right, give me your hand. So he did. And Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, and I love this line, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he made him ride in the chariot. You got the heart, jump on board, son, and you're going to see something. You're going to see the zeal. This was the spiritual destiny of the Rechabites, not to assimilate. This was the man who then set this way of living that was in contrast to everything in the surrounding culture. This is why when Jeremiah puts the wine before the Rechabites in Jerusalem, years later, they're like, we're not going to compromise. In their spiritual DNA was an ability not to compromise. They were standing in the line of, we're not going to be overtaken just by the culture. We're not just going to live in this in-between space. We are actually going with God against the assignment that's coming against. This is why Jeremiah, at the moment when Israel had felt like they'd lost their generation, he's like, it's in your DNA. These people are walking amongst you. We need to reactivate the spirit of Jehu in this moment. So how do you undo an assignment that's come against the generation? You do it by claiming with singleness of heart and action your spiritual destiny. There's spiritual destiny in this room. There's spiritual destiny in individual lives here. There's promises of God that should be knitted in your womb. God's heart is not for people to be stuck in adolescence for the whole of their life. It's not his heart for us to live just for ourselves. It's not his heart to see people addicted and depressed and beat down continually with unbelievable hopelessness. It's not his heart to fall for the faux dreams and mirages of our culture. There is an assignment against this generation. And we have to name it. And we're carrying something. I think there are people here who are carrying a hope that God's going to do something. 
And I think you're like Jehu, you're walking along the road. The fact that you're, you're, your backside's in a seat this morning, you're walking along the road, you want to get alongside this thing that God's trying to do. Maybe some of your mates have disappeared into cave. Maybe some of your mates got taken out in their faith journey. There are people here who feel that battle with their children. Maybe it's little kids, maybe it's adult kids. There's people who feel that tension between being still formed by the world to be young, but realizing, hang on, I'm getting older, I've got to grow up here. There are people who have the heart, but you're here, you have a heart for what God wants. But I think the moment that we're in, the call of the hour is that Jehu's hand is out. And we can't let the assignment keep happening. There has to be a turning point. So what I would love to do now is I would actually love to ask you to stand And we're going to pray for a few moments here. And we're going to pray specifically against this assignment. So firstly, I just want to acknowledge that Jesus, you are Lord. We acknowledge that we are remembering that you came into the world. You did not stay far. And remembering that you came into the world and you gave your life on the cross You defeated sin, you defeated evil, you defeated the powers and principalities. In fact, Colossians says you humiliated them on the cross. And we want to recognize, Lord, that there is an assignment against the next generation who you have put seeds of renewal in. And just as Ahab and Jezebel, Herod, All these corrupt kings and queens came against. We recognize that there are powers and principalities. It's not people. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against powers and principalities. And they're coming against people to discourage them, to entrap them, compromise them, to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus, we say, no more. And Jesus, we want to pray against any specific assignments that have come against the young in Jesus' name. We want to break them off. Father, we want to pray, Father, that you have called us to be set apart, to be different in this world, to be followers of you, Jesus, that you have actually given us hope and destiny And God, we just want to say no to the faulty life scripts of this world. And in Jesus' name, we want to just break any ungodly ties that people have to things of this world in your name, in Jesus' name, right now. And God, we just want to pray and acknowledge your kingship over the powers and principalities that may be over anyone in this room, the spirits that are not of you. We want to pray and name your authority over them. We want to pray against the spirit of lies We want to pray against the spirit of deception and we want to pray against the spirit of secrecy in Jesus' name. As as Herod had them, his conspiracies and plots to come against you, Jesus. But you defeated those things on the cross. So in that place, we hold up your cross. We hold up the empty tomb. And in Jesus' name, we break these things in your name, Jesus. And God, we want to pray for hope In a world of hopelessness where increasingly we just see apocalyptic news, we actually want to pray, Father, that we have a hope, not a schmaltzy, sentimental hope that's based on nothing, but we want to hold the hope of Jesus 
And we want that to be a thrilling hope because it's not from human minds. It's actually spiritual. It's heaven coming down to earth. And we want that hope. And Father, we want to pray for what you're doing amongst us. Particularly, just want to pray for Red Church right now. We just want to pray for what you're doing amongst us. So many churches rebuilding after the last two years. You're rebuilding. You're rebuilding us corporately. You're rebuilding us individually. God, we want to pray protection and we pray against any assignment of the enemy in Jesus' name. We actually pray, Father, that for those of us who are walking like Jehu beside the chariot, we take Jehu's hand right now. And we want to get in that chariot and we want to set ourselves against that assignment and we want to travel with Jehu and we want to see the zeal of the Lord. Father, we pray against half-heartedness. We pray against the foot in both campsness and we actually want to pray in Jesus' name that we get fully in the chariot and we pray against the assignment. And may you do something different amongst us that is a living embodied hope. Just as the Rechabites were living embodied hope in that moment in, in Jerusalem's history, may we be that at this moment. I basically just want to pray for parents who find themselves in a battle from babies to grown kids battling some of these issues who feel like they're just up against it. Help us not just to accept and tolerate, which is not on view. Actually help us in Jesus' name to create that living transmission of faith. We know we don't have to be perfect, but we know that we have to follow you, the perfect Messiah. May our lives be a living testament in everything we do. And lastly, Father, for those of us who feel that we're stuck in this cultural stronghold of not wanting to grow up in you, we break that in Jesus' name. May we step with pride into maturing. May we see gray hair as a crown, as Proverbs tells us. Father, may we see our responsibility for you. May we put the singleness of heart and action together. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. We claim the victory. Hallelujah, God. You are above all and you give all. And we thank you for what you have done. Just as we pray and praise now and worship, I just encourage you to keep praying. There's going to be things which you may feel you need to claim personally in that. I think there's this space which God has opened up. There may be something, perhaps it's a compromise, perhaps it's an attitude, perhaps it's something, perhaps it's a, a child you're, you're, you're thinking of at this moment. Perhaps it's that sense of, man, I've got, to, I've got to grow up in this space. Whatever it may be, I just encourage you, just pray, come Holy Spirit, do your extra work amongst us, the individual things in every heart. Come and do that, we ask and pray. 